We're joined here today by J.P. Pollinger, whose pronouns are they slash them. They are a Los Angeles-based stage manager, theater technician, actor slash performer, mental health advocate, and certified nursing assistant. Very accomplished, obviously. Oh, thanks. They're a passionate advocate for justice, humanity, loyalty, diversity, equity, and most importantly, courage. JP uses their resilient, multifaceted expertise to uplift stories that may otherwise be oppressed, showing that we are not alone in our troubles, no matter how small they are or big. So just to start off the interview really nicely, we're all living through a very uncertain time with COVID-19. How are you right now? Um, I'm doing okay. I'm doing good. Like today's check-in was good. Back in the beginning of the year before the pandemic closed everything, I was a stage management intern at South Coast Repertory. Uh, But since then, I've definitely had my rough patches with depression and finding motivation to go through my days without having a theater job to wake up to. What I found is important to do is to find the joy in the little things. Like I have two dogs and two cats for, uh, with me for emotional support. And I started a vegetable garden in my backyard and just seeing like my cucumbers grow every day. I'm like, yes, something is growing, my babies. And even just waking up and making my bed is something that I can find joy in because it helps me keep the momentum going forward in my day. Sort of like in this kind of unprecedented time, you've had to look for more minute, smaller, irrelevant things from our old lives to put a purpose to, to so yeah. to speak, right? things that we would take advantage of or take for granted. Outside of a COVID world, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? I am an agender under the non-binary umbrella pansexual queer human being. Uh, I'm a proud first-generation Philippinex American, and I've been in therapy since 2014. When I was 16, I was diagnosed with adjustment disorder with anxiety. I also exhibit traits of depression, borderline personality disorder, and obsessive compulsive disorder. So you could say that you're part of the neurodiverse community. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Which is honestly, there's nothing wrong with being neurodiverse. And it's incredible to see people like you who are, despite any challenges that might come up in your life, you are still thriving, you are still doing great things, and you are still putting out content for other neurodiverse youth, or really anyone of any age group to consume and help with their own lives. Let's talk about what you are passionate about, which from what I've seen has to do a lot with storytelling. So how do you use storytelling and by that extension, the arts to help advocate slash fight against any discrimination or injustice that comes your way? Well, I love to help tell stories that society, um, for one reason or another, has silenced throughout history. One of my main missions is to elevate the voices of the underserved, the forgotten, and the silenced. And these stories need to be told and the conversations need to be had in order to normalize our collective beautiful differences from each other. And in those discussions, we can find common ground and realize that no matter how different or the same we are, we are all connected. So what are some types of groups that you um, in the past have worked to uplift their stories that have in the past also been silenced? I know that I recently worked on West Side Story, and for this version of West Side Story, I know a lot of people, when they put up West Side Story, they try to include all people of color in the sharks, but that's not not the story. The story is like the Latinx community versus the whites. It's like, it's a a historical time-telling piece. And for the production that I worked on, we were true to that. We stayed true to like, okay, these are la- the Latinx community. 
versus the white community during this time period and the struggles that they face together. Yeah, and you know, we kind of see that a lot with many different types of art that feature BIPOC characters where, you know, sometimes those who are behind the production say, well, as long as they're people of color, it should be all right. But you're right. A part of that story is that it's the struggle between the white New Yorkers and the Puerto Rican New Yorkers and really who deserves to be around there. So ha- so having that Latinx community is essential to that plot. You can't just have anyone in there. And exactly. so I'm glad that you could play a part in giving that type of representation to a group that can sometimes be sidelined by just, you know, have someone of color and you've got your d- diversity points, right? Mm-hmm. I saw on your social media and on your website that you use this term servant leader. Now, while I've read about it, I want you to describe to our listeners what that means to you personally and what they can do to exemplify that term, servant leader. So the leadership style servant leader is something that I learned in my leadership studies minor in college. As soon as I heard it, I was like, oh my God, this is it. This This is the definition of what I do. It's something that I keep close to my heart and uh, the way that I use it like as a stage manager is I am constantly asking, how can I contribute? A quote from Francis Hasselbein's Work is Love Made Visible, it's a fantastic book, you should totally read it, is leadership is a matter of how to be, not how to do. Leadership is not about title or destination, it is about our character. Good leaders have strong characters, they are mission focused, values based, and demographics driven. They managed for the mission, for innovation, and for diversity. Okay, wow, that was, uh, that was really inspiring to hear. So basically, what I'm gathering from what you're saying is that to be a servant leader means to, in every instance that you can find, be the person you want to see in others, right? Yes, it's, it's the inverted triangle, kind of. Like where you see a, a lot of like man- managerial leaders or business leaders, they are at the top of the corporate structure and everyone else is below them. And like at the very bottom is like the customers of the clientele. Servant leadership is kind of the opposite of that where the leader, the manager is at the bottom and our job is to serve everyone else above us or like on an equal ground. My fellow teammates, my assistant stage managers, my crew members, my cast members, like they're all to be treated with the same level of respect and dignity as I expect to be treated myself. So kind of like disassembling those hierarchies, whether institutionalized or socialized, that says, hey, I'm better than you, I'm superior, based on some arbitrary role. Because, you know, we're all just trying to live, we're all trying to work in the same space. Yeah, it dismantles that. Okay, yeah. And I feel like we can adapt that outside of just, you know, theater productions. We can have that in our classrooms, we can have that in our workplaces, if everyone decides to be a servant leader. Exactly. It's such a great form of leadership that I don't understand is well why it's not used more today. Do you feel like this is something that we should be teaching? Because as you said, you learned this when you were, I'm guessing, uh, in college as a minor, leadership minor. So do you feel like this is something that we should be starting way earlier in life? Because I didn't even know they had leadership courses in college. So imagine if we had them in high school or middle school or even elementary school. Yeah, definitely. This is something that should be taught much, much earlier. This is something that should be at least discussed 
I know that in my um, old, you know, high school uh, district, life skills is no longer a required course and things to do managing your daily life, managing the people around you, communication skills, those things have just disappeared from curriculum. And so people don't really learn those things anymore unless they seek it out. So I definitely think that that should be changed and like given to those at a younger age. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of problems we see right now in politics and just on a global political scale can kind of be traced down to that lack of fundamentals when it comes to being a leader or just working with others because we don't yeah. all have to be the top, be the uh, the apex of a triangle. We just need exactly. to be on the service level and try to help each other. I feel like a lot of listeners hearing these words from you may try to just a little bit more exemplify what a servant leader is. But, you know, moving on, we know that you work a bit with theater productions, as you stated, West Side Story, but you also work as a content creator. So can you tell us about your series, More or Less Awkward, which anyone who wants something to watch, have some fun, learn some things, highly recommend. Yay, thank you. Um, <laughs> so after so many years of therapy, because I, I think at this point, it's 2020, so math, six years. Uh, after six years of therapy and learning all of the amazing skills and having these breakthroughs for myself, I realized that not everyone has that privilege um, of attending therapy, whether it be money or location or the stigma from their family. And so I figured making this uh, content, making this available to the public for free, would provide people with resources, with something that they could use so that they could get through their situations or their mental health, knowing that, one, there's other people like them out there, uh, so they don't have to feel alone about it. And two, they could actually try something that could help them get through a situation. Yeah, and it's important to recognize that a series like More or Less Awkward, it's not something that can really be gatekeeped, you know? It's something that is accessible to all types of people, whether you're neurodiverse or you're trying to educate yourself on how to just be more aware of your own self, self-help or, you know, whether you're just really old and don't understand this whole mental health thing or really young and are just trying to figure out who you are in this world. A lot of people in Modern Divergence are teens, and many of them are also neurodiverse. So I feel like a series like More or Less Awkward is something that at least I know I've been looking for, and a lot of other people on our team have been too. Yay! But let's start on some more fun questions. So what's the most memorable production that you've ever worked on? Okay, so it was my first show at South Coast Repertory in Costa Mesa. Like, I'm in California, for those listeners out there. And it was uh, Where the Mountain Meets the Moon by Min Kang. It's based on a book, based on a novel. And it was directed by Jennifer Chang. And it was amazing. Um, I got to work with creative professionals who are just as in love with their craft as I am. I got to learn so much about the professional world and how it differs from uh, what I learned in school. Because any theater major understands that the environment that they're in in college or in school is a lot different than the environment that they're going to be thrown into um, in the professional world. Can you tell us a little about the plot? Because uh, I'm trying to see if I want to go watch it or not. Okay, so uh, Where the Mountain Meets the Moon, it was part of our Theater for Young Audiences series. And uh, basically, there's this, there's this girl, without giving any spoilers, there's this girl who lives on Fruitless Mountain. And it's very literal, Fruitless Mountain, nothing's there. It's like a very poor community. And she has hope that she can bring fortune back to her community. And her family is like, nope, not going to happen. You can't do it. And this little girl, about, you know, 
Dora's age, uh, <laughs> or like, you know, 10, like some, like a, a child. Yeah. She has so much hope and she's like, you know what? I'm going to go out and I'm going to bring fortune back. So she goes out and she travels on her own and she meets all these like crazy characters and she meets a dragon who's like going to help her on their journey. And there's all kinds of storytelling and all kinds of history. All of her adventures are kind of based on the bedtime stories that her father would tell her that turn out to be real and they're not just legends. And it's, it's just so cool. And the music is, lo- they're low-key bops. I, <laughs> I like, I really like, like it, they're so good. Because when you think of child shows, you're like, oh, okay, whatever. Like, this is going to be a cute little, like, ABC, you know, whatever kind of um, music show. No, this was, like, a really great show. And it was, it's so good. I highly recommend. So it's like a, kind of a creative twist on the heroine's journey. I think so, yeah. Okay, I, I, I'll add it to my watch list. I, I believe you. I, I think you have good taste. Um, so what role did you play in that production were you a performer were you the stage manager oh I was it was my first show um as a stage management intern like my first time being around like a group of fully like unioned professionals they were all part of like actors equity the actors equity association and like I am not an equity member yet so I was like just sitting there I was learning I was doing paperwork and then during the show I performed as deck crew like you know backstage crew helping get set pieces where they needed to be did stuff with the fly rail yeah you know the, the normal chaos that happens backstage yeah that sounds really scary so I'm glad that you're able to look back at it fondly because I I know when you're when you're kind of like a freshie when you're a freshman to all this type of stuff it's so easy to make mistakes and I'm guessing the the entire production was successful oh of course I mean at any production is successful as long as you're enjoying it as long as you get your story across it doesn't really matter what errors happen in each show like each show had like you know oh this prop was supposed to be here but it's not there right now or this actor dropped this on stage and we need to sweep it up really quick like every show had like little tiny mishaps but that's kind of what makes theater great and magical like every show is different even though like you're, you're we're performing the same content like it's just it's live it's so cool yeah, I've heard that from a lot of theater kids, and like, I'm glad to know that that's a universal truth among those who love the theater. Clearly, you're very passionate about the work that you do, so what's your favorite part about being a stage manager? I love the work. I love the paperwork. I love to serve the community, of, uh, and I love being a part of something greater than myself. Like I, I don't, I'm not a stage manager for me. I like, I just happen to like it. Um, I like being able to be there for the community of beautiful people that I get to serve for like each production. So it's something that you see yourself doing for a long time, which I know amongst the other adults in my life is very rare to have some, have a job that you were just like cheesing about. So it's like <laughs> amazing to see that you actually love your job and every single facet about it. Oh yeah, definitely. Even with the pandemic going on, like theater professionals are so creative in the way that they like get content out there or they get stories out there. Like we, there have been so many Zoom play readings that have happened that I'm just like in awe of. I'm like, whoa. And people have like figured out how to use this technology to their advantage. And even Burning Man happened virtually this year. Like they had this whole Sparkleverse thing. It was amazing. So I, yes, I, 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 def- I definitely see myself continuing in theater for the rest of my life. Yeah. And I, I hope so too, because I feel like I can't imagine anything else that would bring you that much happiness. <laughs> 
So here's um here's a random question, and this can be a regular play or a musical. Though I'll admit I'm impartial musicals, so I'm hoping you'll say a musical. What is your favorite production? Not that you've worked on, but that you just watched growing up, or that you could watch like a thousand times and never get tired of. Ooh, okay. So I had I had a Newsies uh, thing. Like I like I had a whole like Newsies. Uh, oh my god, what's that word? It's not trend. Um, it's a phase. phase. Yeah, I, I had I had a Newsies phase where I I watched it for the first time and the set I I was so like blown away by because um, it's the recorded version, the Disney recorded version with Jeremy Jordan. My heart, ah, uh, that so beautiful. And the set blew me away, and the dancing blew me away, and I was just like, whoa, and the harmonies, and so, like, I I definitely had, like, a phase where, like, I had to show every single person that I knew this production on Netflix. I was like, oh, okay, we have to watch this now. That that was, oh my god, I think that was two years ago that I I went through that. I also went through a Shrek the Musical phase until, uh, oh my god, I I made the Good Morning song that Sutton Foster sings, my ringtone, and quickly got sick of it. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't even know it. there was a Shrek the Musical like yes! on Broadway. What? It's so good. Oh, it's so good. I yes. Um, I think it's still on Netflix if you have it or if you can like bum it off of someone. Oh my god! And then I know uh, when Fun Home was on YouTube, that was a big one for me because that that was the first like to to be blunt, that was the first gay musical that I've seen that I had seen and one that uh, told the experience of. Uh, of a lesbian, like, learning about herself and learning about um, the history of, like, with her father and how similar they were, even though, like, he was in the closet and all the difficulties she had to go through, and it was great. It, it was, it's a beautiful show. Yeah, like, I'll have a lot of family, a lot of friends who are part of the queer community, and I find it really weird that a lot of kind of theater productions don't feature LGBTQ characters when, quite frankly, a lot of LGBTQ <laughs> people are part of the theater community. M- like, most of the time when I try to think of, like, my favorite ships, they are gay men, but they're not canon, and it's like, <laughs> if you talk to people who, like, aren't hip to... LGBTQ representation, they're just like, um, actually, I don't think that Alexander Hamilton and Lawrence had anything going on, so could you please stop uh, saying that? Yeah, they Even did. Even if you read the letters, <laughs> everyone knows that that's not how you talk to someone who's just your friend. <laughs> Um, like they were clearly in love. They were clearly <laughs> lovers, and like even I feel like even Lin Miranda was like, like he was like, we, we see each other in the production. But yeah, do you feel like through your work? that you try to, in any way that you can, kind of give that voice to other queer people in the community of yes. Um, theater. Yeah. Yes, of course. Um, c- going back to Wesley's story, I just, I go back to productions that I worked with, with Carrie Hayter. Carrie Hayter, she was the director of Wesley's story and like two other productions that I was stage manager for. She's brilliant. Such a wonderful director. And that uh, one of the characters, uh, their name is Anybody's. And we had this whole discussion with the actor playing Anybody's. It's like, do you think Anybody's is queer? It's like, do we want that um, that backstory for Anybody's? Like, what? why does Anybody's like come off as uh, female, but then want to be part of the Jets and want to be part of like this like fighting crew or like s- something in about like how Anybody speaks let's read like between the lines, like what, what is the backstory of this, of this human being? And the actor like got to decide for themselves. Like I say themselves because I don't know their pronouns. So I just wanted to default to they, them, but yeah, like I, like little instances like that 
where we find like, oh yes, this is the backstory of this character. We're giving a voice to a queer person playing a queer role. Yeah, and it's like, especially when you have those period pieces, whether it's something like West Side Story or something older like Fan of the Opera, we have to be kidding ourselves if we think that every single person in those worlds were cisgender, heterosexual, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know? Yeah. And that's why I feel like as we start going through more musicals at the Tonys, through more productions in our own local theaters, we have to be thinking about, look, the world is not entirely he slash him or she slash her. There are people who don't fit into that binary gender scape and Mm -hmm. they still exist. So we need to show them in our plays if we want to be expressing life. So I'm glad that you're doing all that you can to give people that representation that they deserve because, you know, they're still valid. And like, I'm, I'm finding more confidence in doing so with each production that I work. Because when I first started, I was a bit timid about it because I didn't know how loudly I could use my voice uh, as a stage manager. Because a, a stage manager is supposed to be this neutral party, not really f- like giving any artistic advice, not like just trying to keep the peace and getting communication from one party to the next. But then as I get to know by like the people I'm working with and the energy and talking to the director, it's like, is this a director I've worked with before? Or have we had a conversation, like, am I allowed to, like, give input into this situation that I might have some knowledge about? Like, I've gained more confidence along the way. And I know that as I keep going, I'm just going to keep gaining more confidence and being like, hey, we should think about this. Yeah, and, like, as time progresses, asking for something like that shouldn't be too big of an ask, you know? Saying, Mm -hmm. hey, there's this character that we've never learned their pronouns, we've never really seen them have a specific gendered role, so why are we still sticking to these hard and fast rules that no one's ever set if we can, you know, kind of change things up for the modern world? So, you know... Shout out to anyone in the theater community, any future directors, producers, stage managers. Try to do that as much as you can because you really have nothing to lose and you could be inspiring more people in the queer community, whether they're like 13 and not really knowing what their place in the world is, to aspire to get into that industry because they see themselves there. Now, this one is um, more of a thought-provoking question. What's the biggest challenge you think you faced and how did you overcome it? You know, this can be personal or career related. So uh, I did have to think about this question. And uh, last year was probably my worst year mental health wise. It was my last semester of college. And I, well, I underestimated the transition between college and real life. Because like I had already been working in the professional like world since I was a sophomore. So I figured it wouldn't be much different. But there was this major difference in energy in how I felt, like in losing the community of people that I would see every day at school. Like it it was much lonelier than I thought it was going to be. Uh, It was rough. It was a rough time for me mentally. And I had to make what was a scary decision for me back then, which was whether or not to start medication. I was worried about becoming a type of guinea pig. And I I didn't want to deal with meds messing with my mind and making me less myself. And uh, I was definitely kind of drawing from the musical Next to Normal and what the mother goes through uh, with her psychopharmacologist with like trying this medication and trying this medication. And I, I was so worried about having to go through that. But I was wrong. I was very fortunate. And I'm so thankful 
that I said yes to trying the medication that they that my primary care doctor suggested to me because the medication I'm on actually made my mind less cloudy and opened me up to be more myself than I was ever able to be my like, be before because of all the worrying and all of the anxiety and all of like the, the the cloudiness the thoughts like screaming at myself like it just it uh, for a visual a visual and it like it felt like there were like five different people playing the trumpet in my head just very loudly and off key <laughs> um, all the time and the medication silenced all of that and I've been on it for almost a year now and I feel incredible. So, you know, you would say to anyone who was kind of going or is going through the same thing that you were going through a year ago, that if they're fortunate enough, you know, to have a doctor to be able to afford to do so, take that first step. Yes, definitely. And I know that not everyone's going to be as fortunate as I was because the, the first medication I tried worked wonders. And for some people, it is going to be a trial and error. Honestly, it's worth it. Like, it is so, so, so worth it to just try like get to that place of mental peace yeah and whether that's you know seeking medication to help with those types of problems or just seeking therapy which is very stigmatized regardless of what age group you're in and i know that a lot of our listeners can kind of relate to what you were going through and i hope that this is like a sign that if you are struggling right now in any way that you can seek help whether it's talking to a friend, talking to a psychologist, a therapist, or talking to your doctor about what you can do to remedy the problems that you're going through. So for any of our listeners who are probably wanting to jump into the entertainment industry or as a content creator, what advice can you give them on how you got to where you are? So could you kind of describe your career path to this point? Okay, so I started as an actor, like a child actor, doing commercials and, you know, little theater shows here and there, and got more into theater as I went into high school. And I did a, I did two productions as an actor in high school, and I then was introduced to, sta- to stage management, to theater tech. And I was like, whoa, this is a thing that exists. People do this magic. It doesn't just happen by itself. And as soon as I was introduced to stage management, I was like, this is it. Like, I just kind of fell backwards into it, and I was, like, I went full out, like, okay, cool, this is it. I love all this paperwork. Oh, my God, organizing. Oh, right. So one of the things I do for fun is, like, organize and plan things. Like, it's just such a weird thing that I I know not everyone loves, but I love cleaning. (laughs) I love it so much. And so uh, as I got more into stage management, I, I learned more about it, and I was like, oh, my God, yes, cool. I joined the theater tech team, or, like, the, the theater tech class. And my, my mentor was actually named JP. His name was JP Luckenbach. He was the first person to believe in me. He was the first person to be like, yeah, you have worked hard for this. You really, really want this. You want to learn. You can stage manage this show next semester. And I was like, yes, awesome. And I stage managed, I think, three shows my senior year of high school. And I decided this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do with the rest of my life. This is what I want to go to school for. And so I uh, applied to college, got into Chapman. I, I didn't get into Chapman the first time around. Okay, so I applied for early admission and basically it's like they can give you a second chance. So I didn't get into early admission, but they rolled me over to regular admission because they wanted to see more from me because my grades in high school weren't that good. I was going through a lot. I had a lot of anger issues. My father passed away when I was 14. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I so like just that. as I... 
just as I was entering high school, so I just had a lot going on and I wasn't focused on school. I thought I was gonna be great at APs, but I took AP chemistry and failed. Like, <laughs> it was a lot. <laughs> at least, don't and worry, everyone everyone fails AP chemistry. You're not- It's, it's, it's a lot, and I don't- Crazy. I, I did not appreciate how much I was pushed in high school to be this like person that had to get straight A's and everything, and like I just was angry at the system. And so, when I applied to colleges, that reflected, but I actually went to Chapman to do an interview, an in-person interview. And it was after that in-person interview that they were like, yeah, you belong here. And they accepted me. And I was like, yes, cool. So as a first generation, you know, college student in my family, like I felt the need to work extremely hard to earn my place at that university, even though I kind of already did by getting accepted, but I didn't realize it back then. So I hit the ground running. I started working on productions like my first week there. Uh, I earned a assistant stage manager position on a show called Doxy's God, which is kind of like an aftermath, like an, like an older version of the Charlie Brown characters. It, it hit me deep. I, it, it's a deep show. And so I just kept working from there. I worked every production that I could. It was, I think it was my sophomore year that I started experiencing burnout because I wasn't checking in with myself. And I was under the impression the very wrong impression or that, that my worth defined was defined by my productivity. That is incorrect. Like that would be my advice to everyone is that your worth is not defined by your productivity and you need to take those breaks. You need to celebrate yourself. And this is advice that I got from my professors who were seeing me work so hard and spend all this time like on, like backstage and like doing my paperwork and at rehearsal, they like, they would tell me, you need to take time to celebrate yourself. Like after each production, like I would just plow straight through. I'd be like, okay, cool. On to the next one. But they were like, no, you need to take that break in between shows. You need to celebrate what you just accomplished because what you just did is a lot, is a big deal. Yeah. Um, it's so important to say because grind culture amongst Gen Z, especially people and high school age who want to go to like top 20 schools is insane. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping everyone who's listening to this, please listen to JP. They've already lived through it. They've already finished college. You don't have to only get four hours of sleep. You don't have to get all fives on all your AP exams. A four is enough. A three is passing. Please don't kill yourself over arbitrary things like grades because for it's example, not it. it's not worth it. What you remember most about college wasn't about the grades that you got. It was about the experiences you had doing what you mm -hmm. loved. And that's what's most important. So I'm, I'm really glad that you said that. Yeah, because I wasn't a straight A student. I just knew what I wanted. Like I, I knew where I, I, I knew that I needed to be at Chapman for their theater program. I knew I wanted that. So that's what I put out into the universe. I manifested it. Like I was like, this is what I need. This is what I want. Law of attraction. And so I worked towards that. I was like, what do I need to do to get into this school? Or what do I need to do to get this job or work with these people? And as long as you put that energy forward, it will come back. Yeah. So basically for anyone listening, all the work that you're doing now, it might be hard to stay motivated. It'll be all worth it in the end. Sleep. Oh my God, sleep. I, I still have to tell myself that sometimes. <laughs> the, I mean, these teachers are crazy. Just as like a couple last questions before we sadly have to say goodbye. What would be your advice to those listening who want to better their mental health, whether they're just normal people who feel like they don't need therapy, they don't need self-care, but we all know that they do. 
because you know you don't have to be about to jump off a cliff to want to better your mental state so for anyone over the entire neurodiverse scale what would be your advice to them so i have two things one is a metaphor that my therapist gave me a year ago when you move into a new house a new apartment like you know people move people whatever and you have a toilet but there's no plunger do you go out and buy a plunger so that you're prepared for when you need it or do you wait until you need it to scramble and be like oh oh my god i need this you get it beforehand that's the same thing with therapy like it's a it's a metaphor for therapy like do you wait until you have that mental breakdown and hurt all of the people you love to go to therapy and fix yourself and like figure out what's going on in your head or do you want to go to therapy now when things are you know fine but you're having some questions, some struggles that you want to, you, you need some help getting through, but you don't want to, you know, bother your friends with it. You don't want to talk to your family about it. You just need that third party. You need, you need someone's professional advice. So yeah, that's, that's the first one is that you go to therapy before you need it. And the second one is check in with yourself. Like at, when the day starts and when the day ends, whenever, whatever that means to you, like check in with yourself mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Be like, what do I need in this moment? Do I need food? Have I eaten today? Do I need water? Have I nourished my soul today? Do I need to rest my eyes for five minutes? Do I need to step away from this conversation before I come back to it? Stuff like that. Just think about what you need. Like uh, for people that are religious, do I need to do a prayer really quick to make sure that I'm okay? That is the most important thing that I learned to do because it's so hard to care for other people and serve other people and serve a community when you yourself are not full and whole. And I mean, what you said before, do I need to eat? Do I need to sleep? Do I need to drink? That should be the top priority. Not, I need to get this A on my physics test. I need to get into Yale or Harvard. I need to get a 1600. I need to eat. That should be like Maslow's hierarchy, the first need. Yeah, exactly. Besides just advice to those who want to improve their mental health, what would be your advice to those who already know that they are neurodiverse or queer youth? People who I know from experience are marginalized and are sometimes invalidated and are just ignored when it comes to the average teenage experience. So Mm -hmm. as a person who has lived through it, what would be your advice to them? Be you for you, for yourself. Like, don't dress for other people. Don't shave your head for other people. You know, don't say you're into stuff when you're not. You know, like, be, be yourself. Be your truest self for yourself. The hurt that you're, like, the hurt, the struggle that you're going to experience is going to be from trying to impress other people or trying to live up to other people's expectations. Like, just because you're gay or queer doesn't mean you need to dress like it. Like, some people do. Some people want to. Like, uh, some people come out and they're like, yeah, I can dress like this now. But that's not the point. Like, I'm non-binary. I'm, I'm agender. But I don't look like it. And I don't feel the need to look like it. I am female passing. And even though, like, some days I feel more feminine or some days I feel more masculine, I dress according to how I feel that day, not according to how I want other people to perceive me. Yeah, like you don't need to meet a checklist of things for you to be like, oh, you're, well, you're not truly non-binary if you don't dress 
androgynously or you're not truly she slash her if you don't wear a skirt that doesn't matter it doesn't matter exactly. it's about what you identify as like signaling to your community is like the the last thing your clothing should do or that your hair should do because your community will know like just by your energy i had queer people know that i was queer before i knew i was queer <laughs> it, it's an energy you put out. It's a, it's an openness. It's a, a vibe. It, yeah, it's a vibe. It, it really is. Um, and it, it seems like such a simple thing, but it really is just a vibe. You, you understand your the community. Like the people that are for you will be there for you. Yeah, I like that. I like that term. Be you for you. I, I feel like a lot of people, regardless of age, need to hear that. And just a last question before we both sign off. What are your thoughts on what Modern Divergence is doing? I think it's so cool. Oh my God. You all, everyone, is doing a fantastic job. I love hearing about the neurodiverse community. I actually had never heard that word before, um, before I was introduced to um, your podcast. And I was, I looked it up. I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. No, I think it's great. I think that you should definitely keep spotlighting um, people in our community. Your questions are amazing. And I like that you did your research about me. Like, oh my gosh, I'm honored. <laughs> it was fun to do. Don't worry. I mean, I had fun doing it. Well, thank you guys for all listening. This has been the latest edition of Moda Spotlight. Please tune in next time for our next Moda Spotlight. And thank you so much for allowing us to interview you. Of course, it was fun.